Next on the Public Radio Hour, NASA historians will shed light on legendary rocket scientist Werner von Braun's connections to Nazis and desegregation. Is it because he really has an, a passion for civil rights, or is it because he'd like to see the funding for the space program continue? And this is a this is a weak point. We'll learn about efforts to connect high school students with jobs at the new Mazda Toyota plant and go job hunting on the A Smart Place website. So when you can log into the site, whether you're a parent, whether you're a student, whether you're an employer, a job seeker, there are lots of opportunities and information on this portal. And we'll get a legislative update on proposals regarding Common Core, abortion, and medical marijuana. The effort has never gotten very far. Now you've got a Republican who's taken the lead on this issue and has a lot of bipartisan support. The Public Radio Hour is next, here on member-supported 89.3 Huntsville. This is the Public Radio Hour on member-supported 89.3 Huntsville. I'm your host tonight, Brett Tannehill. It changed the world in so many ways. That first step on Earth's moon. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Oh, that looks beautiful for me, It has a stark beauty all its own. It's uh, like m- much of the high desert of uh, the United States. It's uh, different, but it's very pretty out here. It brought a shift in global politics and a wave of new technology and also changed the way Americans felt about ourselves at a time of social upheaval. It also changed our city forever, setting us on a course that has led to Huntsville being one of the smartest, most desirable places to live on the planet. And everywhere you look around the Rocket City, there are namesakes of the man who played a huge role in making all that happen, German rocket pioneer Dr. Werner von Braun. And inevitably, Whenever Von Braun's name comes up, there's usually someone, somewhere, ready to call him a Nazi, as he and his research team were drafted into service by Hitler. And he's also blamed for the deaths of thousands of people during World War II, as his early rocket technology, the V-2, was used to bomb civilian targets. This is also the same man who played a key role in desegregation in Alabama. It's a complicated legacy, one that centers around Von Braun's dream of exploring space, and one that many still struggle to reconcile today, if that's even possible. But tonight on the Public Radio Hour, we hope to help you elevate your own understanding and help put things in a clearer context. In part two of a discussion we're having with NASA's chief historian, Dr. Bill Barry, and Marshall Space Flight Center historian, Brian Odom. Okay, so two questions about um, Werner von Braun. One easy, one not so easy. So first, if both of you please correctly pronounce his name uh, into the microphones, nice and clear, so uh, everyone in the Tennessee Valley can can hear this. (laughs) It is uh, von Braun. Braun. And Bill, uh, just to to clarify this. I defer to my Marshall uh, Space Flight Center historian. So, because you call the, the Von Braun Center and it's said wrong, you hear it wrong on TV. And it's something that people get really emotional about when you try to correct them. I, I got in an argument with NPR one, one night about it, and they were just sure that I was wrong. And I was like, well, we can call some people. And it's it's a very touchy thing. The good thing about it is, you know, he got that question a lot as well. And so we Did do he just have, give up answering it? Well, or? no, no. He continued to answer it throughout his life. You know, he he, he corrected every – he didn't correct people. If somebody wanted to call him uh, Von Braun, you know, he would go along with it. But uh, we have him on tape where interviewers would ask him, uh, how do you pronounce your name? And he says Von Braun, right? And I tell people the easiest way to remember it is to think of the Germanization of – of, of the last name or the Americanization of the German last name when families moved here and they, you know, for, for different multiple reasons, they wanted to shed that the, what they considered to be a stigma in some communities. They, they kind of Americanized it into Brown. So a lot of people were walking around today with the last name Brown. That's actually where that comes from. Not all, but so. And that kind of brings me to the second question in terms of uh, von Braun's uh, legacy. Uh, it inevitably comes up, the ties to the Nazi party. What is the correct context in which to look at that and evaluate that? That's a really tough one. Um, and we talked about the the name being sensitive. This takes it even a few steps further, obviously. Yeah, um, the situation um, is interesting because, of course, you know we're looking back on it from – 
from um, you know a perspective of you know uh, our life here in the 21st century, right, right. right? And uh, and and also you know like in my case the decisions that that von Braun was making. Did I pronounce that right? You did. Yeah. <laughs> the decisions he was making as a young man who's very enthusiastic about being involved in in you know sending rockets into space um, and and making some you know you know deals with people that uh, he thinks will be able to help him. I mean. You know, I think about some of the decisions I made when I was in my 20s and 30s, um, and I'm, I'm glad the consequences weren't anywhere near as high as they were for him. Um, but um, I think we have to sort of sort of look at that in context and say, you know, well, well you know, what would what would we have done in a similar situation? Um, uh, ultimately, you know, his goal was clearly he was focused on um, on exploring space. Um, and uh, he made some choices uh, early on that were uh, were ones that that we might now, in retrospect, knowing how things turned out, say, well, that wasn't very very nice, or wasn't very smart, or you know, he made a deal with the devil on on this thing. Was it really worth it? Could he have even reasonably known that that was good, that was how things were going to turn out? Now, once he's in the middle of it, and um, and and it becomes clear that uh, you've got you know um, you know Jewish um, and and other undesirables working in slave labor camps to build V2 rockets for him. Um, you do have to wonder about, about his response to that, I suppose. And, and uh, uh, I, I would like to think that, that I might have made a braver and wiser choice than he did. I'm not sure what that would have been. Um, but uh, it's, it, was, it was a difficult position to look at. Um, ultimately, when he comes to the United States, he and, and many of the others who were uh, you know, tied to the Nazi regime in, in high technology areas, the United States brought a number of them over. And uh, almost all of them, their records were sanitized by other government agencies, right. not by NASA. And then he winds up working for the, de- the Department of the Army here in Huntsville eventually. Um, and then eventually, as you know, the uh, which now the Marshall Space Flight Center becomes part of NASA. Um, he gets pulled into that, and and that background is largely not known even to people in the highest levels of NASA. But you kind of touched on it there. The thing that I have trouble wrapping my head around is that was his dream: is to you know find an avenue to you know to explore space and to and to do these things. And and like you said, the decisions you make along the way, it's easy to look back and have an evaluation. But at the time, that's what is interesting to me is, is that pursuit of the dream at, at what cost. Right. And so, there, you know, there's always the, this idea of this Faustian bargain, right? This bargain for this is the dream. The dream is space. Uh, what do I have to do to achieve that? And then within that, there's the, you know, within Germany at the time in Nazi Germany, there's this competition that he's – uh, not caught in the middle of. He's not uh, clueless about this, but between the army, uh, you know, and 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 where he would like to be, uh, you know, right. And so, you know, there's a lot of careerism associated with this. I think uh, Mike Newfeld uh, really is the best person to look at this because he really gets into the details. What are the details? What are the facts of this? What do we know? Uh, you know, and, and to Bill's point, you know, there are there are points along the way when it becomes obvious where. Uh, you know, you know what you know, and there's no way you don't know that. Uh, and, you know, especially when mm-hmm. we talk about production, when we're still talking about testing of V2s, I mean, there's still, you know, the V2 itself, you know, is a, is a weapon of war, right? Uh, there are, you know, thousands of people are dying in, in you know, London and in Belgium and France and different places in Europe. Uh, so, but this is a weapon of war. And I think, in the, you know, from the American military's perspective, they understood that as part of it, right? So, there's no, there's, you know, there's no Faustian bargain there. But yes, it's once you begin to see, once you get to, to where these things go into production, the V2 facilities, and then the development of the facility itself, which was one of the, uh, you know, one of the largest losses of life, uh, and to dig, basically dig a production facility in the side of a mountain. Uh, there, you know, thousands of people die, concentration camp labor there. Who knows this? When does he know this? And von Braun actually uh, in his later life, he kind of reflects on these things, and you know, and he talks about these. He he wishes, you know, he wishes he'd done something at that time. But you know, uh, how do you you know how do you do you take someone at their word then when that's behind them? The best thing as historians, what we do is we just look at this and we try to develop the context of of these lives and of these events as much as we can and to paint a clear picture of what happened. But you know, you still look at the idea of, uh, and the judgment is for the population to determine. I mean, we talk, you know, this is not the only topic we talk about this. In America, we talk about the history of slavery, you know, built, you know, an economy built on the backs of enslaved labor, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and we have, 
you know, the, the Confederate memorials, you know, and so there's, there's all these different decisions. You know, Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence, you know, owns hundreds of slaves throughout his life. As historians, we look at those and we develop a deep context and paint a clear picture of what their lives were like uh, and, and somehow reserve judgment uh, of that. But Van Brown is definitely somebody who's characterized by this. When people think of his name now, that's the association with the V2 and with the concentration camp labor. It's still something that people have to have to you know seriously consider. And so, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Bill. One of the, one of the other things I think is really interesting about Von Von Brown is you look at you know what happened there, but then then what happens in the 1960s when he's here in Huntsville, and this is this has come out you know in the, in the civil rights uh, symposium we had uh, a while back, and and we'll be talking about it more in this conference on uh, on NASA in the South. Um, Von Braun's Von Braun's role in um, in helping to desegregate. Um, Huntsville so that they could bring uh, African-American uh, engineers and uh, work talent here to work uh, because many, they tried to recruit people to come work here and, and many would say I'm not going to Huntsville, I can't buy a house I can't go out to eat in a restaurant um, you know, and all these other things that were, that were lifestyle issues and quietly, largely behind the scenes but now we now know, um, you know Von Braun was out there pushing the government of Alabama, particularly the, the, you know, the, the governor himself Say you know if we don't find a way to make this work and and, and allow you know, African Americans to work here at this federal facility, um, you know the U.S. government is going to pull this facility out of here and move it someplace else, and that was a huge amount of leverage uh, to help um, encourage um, change here in, in the Huntsville area. But yeah. but isn't that also connected connects back to that dream that he still is pursuing in terms of? Yeah, there's there's a level of opportunism associated <laughs> exactly. with that as well, uh, you know, because you know, ultimately, why do you decide that, you know, and none of us are free from this. Why do we make the decisions that we make? Well, it's, sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's complex. Uh, why it does, is very complex. Why it, does Von yeah. Brown uh, see that equal employment is in his in his best interest? Uh, is it because he really has an, a passion for civil rights or is it because he'd like to see the funding for the space program continue and this is a this is a weak point. And again, this is you know, we can't get inside of his mind. We can't see what he you know. The one thing I will tell you is uh, you know he he would comment from time to time in in a personal way on what was going on with civil rights. That was very interesting. In fact, uh, you mentioned uh, George Wallace. You know he was uh, never a fan of George Wallace and and, and von Brown's daughter Margaret von Brown. Uh, you know, she is somebody who grows and in, in, in as a young woman actually gets involved in the civil rights movement herself. Uh, but Von Brown himself, you know, uh, once told, you know, once commented that the state of Alabama had drawn a Berlin Wall around the ballot box. Well, there were a lot of people in Alabama who were very angry at that comment. And, and this goes back to his history, right? I mean, if he's someone who's done what he's done in the past, you know, how dare he say something about Alabama politics, you know. So it's, it's a lot of unique moments like that in this whole process. But, you know, Von Brown, from what we know, Von Brown was someone who did take actual steps in a positive way for civil rights in the state of Alabama. And you really can't deny that. Why he did it is, is left for, for other people to debate. So let's move back to the present now. Are, are we once again in a race back to the moon. China is there. Uh, Mike Pence, Vice President Mike Pence, was just in Huntsville saying that America will be back in five years. Are we in a race and why? Well, I don't think we're in a race. I mean, there there really are no competitors with the United States in this in the space where we spend way more money than anybody else on, on our space program, both for national defense and also for you know civil space research. Uh, and the Chinese, uh, they're they're doing great work. They're very committed and and doing things, but they're very systematic and they're taking their time and they're basically doing what people have done before. Um, you know, they've you know. There, there isn't. I don't think anything they've done yet that is is a completely new and first thing. But it is it is impressive uh, that they've you know, improved their economy and technical capabilities that far. But you know, if the Chinese put a person on the moon in the 2020s and we don't have an American back on the moon by 2020s, well, yeah, but we put somebody there in 1969. So I mean, right. it's not like it's a race, <laughs> right? Um, is is there a different um, level of? I don't want to say competition, but is there a different relationship between uh, scientists and researchers 
now as opposed to when American, America and Russia were, were vying for that spot? Yeah, I think there's a level of openness now. I mean, you know, the space program is much more advanced now than it was then. A lot of the, you know, it, now we realize what the commitments are. And, and, and if nations are willing to invest in those technologies, I mean, those technologies are, you know, they're not off the shelf products, but, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's easier. Well, we say easy, but it's never, space is never easy. But there are going to be more participants in that program now than there were. When it was a you know, polarized world where the, the Soviets and the Americans were fighting for supremacy, that reflected that larger you know, geopolitical interest. You know, it was communism exactly, and democracy. Exactly. Uh, now it's a lot more nuanced than that. Now we're looking at you know, with the International Space Station. You, know, you have international partnerships, the Canadians, the Russians there, right? Uh, the Japanese. I mean, there's, there's, there's a huge international efforts there. And we could see these efforts down the road again, or we could see this as, you know, so, so to say it's, to say that this reflects the space race of the sixties, I think that, I think we all have to back off of that a little bit. So when vice president Mike Pence says that we'll be back there in five years, why would we do that? What is the goal? Is this something that any, either of you can? Uh, well, you know, the, the president is very committed to space exploration, and uh, I think that the, the understanding in, you know, in the White House and, and the executive branch of government is that investment in the space program you know, is, a, is a valuable thing for America. You think about all the things that happened uh, with the investment we made in the Apollo program. I mean, literally, the world changed. We probably would have had microcomputers, and we might actually have had cell phones at some point, but uh, what happened with the spending on Apollo was that was done as a public open program. And so breakthroughs and findings there went immediately to the public and, and many more actually you know, being done by commercial companies for NASA under contract. So it was really easy for that stuff to integrate into the economy really quickly. And it had huge ripple effects. Um, yeah, would we, have, would we have had microcomputers? Yeah, the, the military probably would have eventually wanted them for some purposes. Would that stuff have gotten out into the public eventually? Probably, but would have happened at the pace it's happened? And, and would we have had you know, the, the world we now have uh, at this point? I don't think so. I mean, you think about it, it's a, you know, it's a technology, you know, it's a paradigm shift. You know, the, the way you do business pre-Apollo tech, from a technology standpoint and the way you do business post-Apollo from a technology standpoint is completely different. So this, this investment at that time really changes the world in a way that, you know, from a development of technologies, from what technology can do for us here back on Earth. And I think, you know, all investment in the space program uh, seemingly is, it has this, this ripple effect back in our daily lives. And I think that technology transfer is something that, you know, we're always looking forward to. So any investment that brings that along is, is great. So, uh, Brian and Bill, I appreciate you talking with us. One last question. I want each of you uh, to tell us about your favorite current NASA project. It can be anything, uh, something that really sort of grabs your imagination and something that you, you, you follow. What, what, what would it be? You want to go first? I'll go first. Yeah, y'all, yeah. Y'all, you both look like you're thinking of a thousand things yeah. right now. That's the hard part. It's it, choosing. So, this is, so, Brian? The thing about NASA <laughs> that everybody knows <laughs> is there's something for everybody. There is, you know, you, just in, from the, in, in astronomy, there's, you know, the whole range, the whole spectrum, you know, the great observatories. But for me personally, uh, you know, the, the propulsion is always when you feel that, you know, and you see that, it's one thing. But, the, you know, the Chandra X-ray Observatory. You know, here, you know, the office is here in Huntsville and Martin Weisskopf, the uh, project scientist there right next door to you actually here. Uh, Chandra is something that helps us redefine X-ray astronomy in a way that previously was uh, – people just couldn't conceive of that. That, to me, I've I've spent a lot of time talking to the people who worked on that program, uh, folks in Boston. You know, it's again, it's one of these great collaborations. Uh, It's a huge national effort. Uh, But just to hear them talk about – you know, the work that was going on in the, se- in the late 60s and early 70s, you know, not for that program, but in X-ray astronomy. And then to hear the proposal goes in in 1976, you know, for Chandra. And then the development work that goes, developing something that's never been done before, to the precision of that instrument and what it has to do. And it's designed for, you know, a, a three to five year life. It's still on orbit and still returning great science today. So, you know, personally, I think that's just fascinating. You know, as, as, and as a liberal arts guy, 
don't understand hardly any of it, but it's just. You know. <laughs> but again, the nice thing about being a liberal arts guy at NASA, you know, you're you're easily amused one thing because it's just so fascinating. <laughs> but uh, but to me, that's 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 a really cool project that I hope a lot of people really uh, kind of look into. Okay, Bill, you can't pick that one. You have to pick something else. Oh man, it, it's so hard. I I think what I'll, I'll, I'll try and wrap up a whole bunch of things in, in one thing because uh, to me, what's amazing about NASA is that you know. Our NASA's budget is $20 billion a year these days, right? That's a lot of money. But when you look at it in the context of the whole federal budget, how much the U.S. government spends, that's less than half of one cent of every federal dollar spent. So NASA's budget is less than half of 1% of the federal budget, right? So, uh, and for that, we get Voyager space probes still communicating with us from interstellar space. Uh, we get probes uh, orbiting Jupiter. Uh, we have a, we had a probe that orbited Saturn for years, sending us back data. That mission just ended, um, and you know, we've explored every planet in the solar system, even some things way out in the Kuiper Belt. That that bunch of objects, you know, beyond the orbit of Pluto, um, uh, and we've got rovers wandering around on Mars. We got multiple we have multiple orbiters orbiting around Mars, so we can talk to the rovers wandering around on Mars. Um, we had you know we've studied Mercury, we've studied Venus, every planet's been studied, and we've got. People that walked on the moon, and we're still studying the moon now. We're getting ready to go back to the South Pole, which will be really exciting. And then there's all stuff we're learning about Earth. And on top of all that stuff that we're learning about Earth and, and all space stuff, NASA still has an aeronautics program where we're learning about uh, you know, how to control air traffic more effectively and efficiently and how to fly supersonically without making a loud boom. So maybe someday we'll get back to having supersonic flights for, for people to fly around in and get to places faster. Um, and we're building electric aircraft and, and, and improving the technology on that so we can make the jump from you know, uh, fossil fuel-driven aircraft to, to electrically powered aircraft. All the stuff we get for that little tiny investment, man, I wish I could give more. But yeah, but but one thing, like Bill's favorite <laughs> oh, one my, thing, my I'm going to uh, hold you to it. You're going to hold me to it. Okay. Um, because you have to think about Huntsville Public Radio listeners. They they want to know they want to know one thing. Bill like you know, and they're <laughs> going to go look it up. We you know, so you got to pick one thing. One thing. Oh, if I were to pick one thing, I think I'd have to say it's. Um, at the moment, anyway, uh, rovers wandering around on Mars. I mean, think about it. Uh, we've got one super powerful nuclear-powered robot wandering around the surface of Mars that's visiting what used to be a lake bed on Mars and telling us all about when there was water on Mars and why Mars was a wet planet, much like Earth is now. Mars had a lot of water on it billions of years ago and doesn't now. The thing that I think is the coolest about having a robot on Mars is we've got orbiters around Mars that take pictures of that robot wandering around on the surface of Mars. <laughs> <laughs> that, I think that's just so cool. And somehow the data gets back through, and, and through the – It's amazing. The, yeah. Well, Brian and Bill, thank you so much for talking with us. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Dr. Bill Berry, NASA's chief historian, and Marshall Space Flight Center historian Brian Odom. You can find this discussion and last week's discussion of Apollo 11 on our podcast page at WLRH.org. Look under the Programs tab for the Public Radio Hour. And stay tuned as we have more conversations about Apollo 11 and Huntsville and space as we lead up to the 50th anniversary of the moon landing this July. And don't forget about the upcoming screenings of Chasing the Moon at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center on May 3rd. Thanks for tuning in our weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features. Huntsville's Saturn V legacy still resonates today with a booming economy and a diverse mix of jobs in science and technology. One of the biggest recent developments is construction of the $1.6 billion Mazda Toyota plant, which is already gearing up to hire 4,000 workers beginning this fall. As with the Saturn V, the success of this plant hinges on having a well-trained, highly competent workforce, and efforts are underway in local high schools to make sure interested students will be ready. Katie Ganaway has been reporting on the arrival of Mazda Toyota, and she files this story. The promise of a high-income, full-time job right after graduation is a dream come true for some high school students. The new auto manufacturing plant coming to Huntsville, Mazda Toyota Manufacturing USA, Inc., is looking to recruit students with an interest in working for the automotive industry. And some North Alabama students are already on the path to help fill the 4,000 jobs opening up there over the next two years. 
The auto collision class at Morgan County Schools Technology Park fills up with students who split up into groups in a warehouse turned classroom. Do you think we need to take this little piece off right here? Today they're working on engines recently donated to them by Toyota. Their teacher, Robert Bryson, supervises. So put it on there and just spin it. Hold it and spin it. If you don't have room to spin it, then you're just going to ratchet. A mix of students travel here once a week from all over Morgan County. Dawson Lindsay, a sophomore in Mr. Bryson's class, says he hopes to be part of the new generation of Alabama's auto workers. Today, his assignment is different. He and a classmate must take on a challenging task before the next bell rings. Gotta get Mr. Bryson's truck fixed so he can go home. Lindsay says he's enjoyed repairing cars ever since he can remember. He says Bryson's class helps refine his skills, preparing him to turn his beloved hobby into a career. You have a time limit, and when you're in here, we only have an hour, two hours, so it really prepares you for real life. When Mazda Toyota broke ground in November, they awarded a $250,000 grant to six school districts in North Alabama. The grant supports STEM and career technical programs aligned with advanced manufacturing. We attempted to reach out to Mazda Toyota for an interview and did not receive a reply. Bryson says despite the grant money and Mazda Toyota's promise of an impressive starting salary of about $50,000 per year, he does not feel pressure to customize his lesson plans to funnel his students into the Huntsville megasite. Because there are too many other opportunities, I think it just gives the kids another avenue to go if they want to pursue that route. Mazda Toyota also allocated $500,000 in grants to be invested in North Alabama's workforce development through the Huntsville-Madison County Chamber Foundation. The chamber is investing in students as well, encouraging them to stay in the area and obtain their careers locally with its recently renovated website, asmartplace.com. I learned the different skills, but I also got into the AMT program, and I was a sponsored student by Toyota, so I got a degree. After two years, I was actually hired on full-time at Toyota as a maintenance technician. What you just heard is a unique feature on the website called works.tv, a collection of hundreds of videos of working professionals. Georgina Chapman, the Chamber's Director of Workforce Development, says in the videos, real workers are on site describing what their job entails. Then from that point, we can try to match those students with internships, get them on site and learning from someone who can teach them the ropes. A Smart Place features career cards as well, another facet you won't find on other job search engines. The cards show job seekers a list of local jobs within this field currently available in the Tennessee Valley, and that benefits both users seeking new or different jobs and those seeking employees. It's an opportunity for them to post positions right here and then offer this to the people that are working here. On top of that, Chapman explains one more way the grant helps students, and that's through their Industry Insights program. It immerses educators in the places their students see in those videos. And then they're able to take that information back to their students. You know, a year from now, they could have a student that says, I have an interest in mechanics. Let me point you in a direction. From that leap in a certain direction, students looking to work in Alabama's automotive manufacturing field can apply for a scholarship available through the Alabama Community College System's Dream It, Do It Alabama program. Its purpose is to reach out to youth about the future of manufacturing and its careers. Students can also check out the Limestone County Career Technical Center's new Advanced Manufacturing course, which opened last summer. The course, sanctioned by the Manufacturing Skills Standards Council, was created specifically to aid the future craftsmen and women in earning key certifications sought by Mazda Toyota. For WLRH, I'm Katie Ganaway. This is the Public Radio Hour, a local production of listener-supported 89.3 Huntsville. This weekly public affairs show was created to shine the spotlight on the Tennessee Valley. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Brett Tannehill. In that last segment, you probably heard Katie mention the new job hunting website, A Smart Place, in her reporting. The website isn't just for those seeking a new job. You can find all sorts of things there including information on skill certifications and courses, online training, resume building, and hundreds of videos showing people in action, in their careers, in all sorts of different industries. 
Georgina Chapman, Workforce Development Director for the Huntsville-Madison County Chamber of Commerce, sat down with Jenny Kennedy for a deeper dive on A Smart Place, which you can find online at asmartplace.com. I joined the chamber in September, and since I came on board, it's been, you know, all systems go for launching a smartplace.com. It's the brand new site that we have. Um, it's always been a job search site, but now we've rolled it out to be even more robust site for career navigation, for exploring jobs. So not just finding the job that you want immediately, but an educational tool for determining what career pathway you want to take, whether you're a student or a job seeker. And so uh, since I came on board, we've hired an education specialist, and he is uh, a former educator and, and is able to go into the schools and visit with teachers and students and really get them thinking about what is it that they want to do when they grow up. We all talked about that in high school and college. And when I graduated from college, I had a degree in English, and I didn't really feel like there was a place for me in Huntsville. But I think the chamber is doing taking action to change that view. Right, right. And we certainly are, are very focused on retention. We really mm -hmm. want our students to be able to think that this is a place that they can get their degree or their training, two-year associate's degree, whatever they choose to do, we want them to know that they have options and to be able to stay in our communities and to pursue jobs in our communities because we have all these companies here that are hiring and able to train them or provide an internship opportunity. And so the more that we can make that information available and through this website, that's one of the great ways that we're trying to do that. And it caught my attention because, on a personal note, because my son graduates from Montevallo in May and has no clue what to do next. I imagine a lot of listeners have college-age kids or kids who are getting ready to graduate from high school and would kind of like to give them a shove in this general direction. How do we go about doing that? So what's fantastic about the site is it's all free accounts. And so we really have different audiences we're targeting. And I know a lot of your listeners um, have children of their own or perhaps are educators themselves. So it's students that they could be speaking with, but especially for parents to let their kids know it's never too early to be thinking about what it is that they want to do from eighth grade all the way through high school. We've even spoken with elementary students. But for even the students that are going through college and trying to determine, you know, what is it that they want to pursue when they get that degree and what they want to do afterwards, this is a site where they can at least watch videos that are connected to career cards. All of it is free. Um, and with a very snapshot glance, they can be looking at, is this something that I really want to do when I get out of school, whether it's high school, out of college, maybe they want to pursue certification, some sort of training opportunity. And um, and this is a resource that they can do that. And so hopefully your son, if he, you know, from the comfort of his own desk, comfort of his own computer, it's an app as well, a smartplace.com is an app, he can be pursuing and watching videos and trying to figure out, is this something that I want to do for the next five years, 10 years, and can I find a home here and an employment here? Right, and it's not just the job. It's it's the whole living conditions, the whole place, the whole mm -hmm. sense of place. And mm -hmm. I think what, what can Huntsville offer somebody, a young person who's right out of college? Why would we want to work in Huntsville? We have so many companies that are relocating here. I feel like we're in the news quite often mm -hmm. about a lot of our um, Companies that are either expanding, they're moving headquarters here, they're opening new offices here. And so we want our students to understand that they have so many options for jobs that they don't need to leave and go to perhaps a bigger city where they think they may have more opportunity, but then cost of living is increased. Mm -hmm. And so if we can, with the Chamber's um, role, is if we're working with companies that are here, we're trying to make sure that they're moving here, they're wanting to be a part of our community, they want to hire our citizens and the folks that live here. And so it's it's an opportunity for us to now turn around and say, students, job seekers of all ages, you know, stay in this area. We want you to stay in this area. There are lots of opportunities that you can have in a job that you can support your family and make a good career. And I checked out the website of smartplace.com and there's a spot for parents. And I started to sign up, but I didn't. Why should I, as a parent of a young person, sign up? It's so important for parents to have the conversations with kids. It's what I was saying earlier, it's never too early to start talking to them about what it is that they want and to Maybe they'll pursue. even listen to you. <laughs> they might even listen to you. Or if you, as a parent, set up an account, and again, it's free, this is your chance to even uh, – decide, is this a conversation I want to have with my kid? Is this something we want to view together? Or at least to be aware of some of the resources that are available. And so then you can sit down with your child and say, is 
would you like to set up an account as well? With every career card, it's a, the, the way it's set up is there's a testimonial video. So it's not necessarily about the company itself. It's showcasing someone who says, I am a lab technician. This is basically the day-to-day of, of my job. This is what I do. These are the steps it took uh, for me to get this job. And then below that video is a description of the job. And what I enjoy the most is right below that are the current openings right now. Mm-hmm. So that the parent and the student at snapshot glance can look and see this is a pretty robust um, profession. This is a robust career choice for me. These are openings that I could pursue right now. Um, it's a good indicator of, of perhaps the um, the potential for them to get a job and to be hired. And there are resources for job seekers as well, such as resume building. Right, right. So we have an online resume builder as well. And so, you know, what we find is a lot of the parents are opening up an account because they want to be able to see what their their child is, is looking at. Taking um, notes. Taking <laughs> notes, encouraging the conversation, getting them just thinking about their future and um, helping to streamline that conversation. And, uh, and then we've noticed that with job seekers of all ages, especially with the announcements of all the companies that are moving here, some people are coming to us and saying, I've worked a career for 10, 15, 20 years, and I'm thinking about doing something completely different. Mm-hmm. And again, from the comfort of their home, their computer, their phone, they can be looking at these career cards and deciding, is this a different career change I want to make? And so we've got different audiences. And so when you can log into this site, whether you're a parent, whether you're a student, whether you're an employer, a job seeker, there are lots of opportunities and information on this, on this portal. Thank you, Georgina Chapman. She's the Workforce Development Director of the Huntsville-Madison County Chamber of Commerce. Anything else you want to add while you're here? I encourage all of you just to go check out the site. The more we can make this a robust ecosystem from companies that are, that are posting their employment opportunities, their internship opportunities, this is more information that we can show our students and our, our citizens here, and they can find opportunities and jobs. That was Jenny Kennedy talking with Georgina Chapman with the Huntsville-Madison County Chamber of Commerce about a smart place, an innovative new website designed to help you and your neighbors connect with jobs and job training here in the Tennessee Valley. We'll wrap up tonight's Public Radio Hour by catching up on things happening during the Alabama legislative session, now underway in Montgomery. Don Daly is host of Capital Journal, which airs Monday through Thursday nights at 1030 and Friday nights at 8 on Alabama Public Television. I spoke with Don earlier today about a few of the big items now under consideration, including bills regarding Common Core, women's reproductive rights, and medical marijuana. And just a few minutes ago on this program, Don, our listeners heard a couple of segments related to job training and recruitment here in North Alabama. The Huntsville-Madison County Chamber of Commerce was one of several chambers around the state that has come out in favor of the Common Core curriculum standards as a way to make sure high school students are job ready. However, at the state house and in certain parts of the state, there is massive opposition to Common Core. So what's the latest there in Montgomery? It certainly is a divisive uh, issue, and where we are, of course, the Senate, before the legislative spring break, passed uh, legislation that would repeal the so-called Common Core standards uh, in a couple of years. They put a, a, a grace period in there, so to speak, to allow state officials to develop new standards. Phase the up. legislation moves to the House now, and um, the House is expected to take a more deliberative approach to this. One of the criticisms of the Common Core repeal legislation in the Senate was how fast it moved. It did it move fast. It did. It was introduced on one day. It was passed by the committee the next day, and then on the third day, passed the full Senate. That's not expected to be the speed we'll see on this legislation uh, in the House. As a matter of fact, uh, Senate leadership said that in sending it to the House, they fully expected uh, the process to be more deliberative in the lower chamber. There are likely to be a lot of changes to the Senate version, and the House will ultimately probably pass a version, if it does pass a version at all, would pass an amended version that would probably go back to the Senate. So uh, it's a pretty divisive issue. Does the support from chambers of commerce, business groups, things like that, have any real effect on how lawmakers uh, will address this issue? I get the impression that lawmakers are listening very carefully. Some of the uh, amendments that were tacked on, the changes, rather, to the Senate passed version of this repeal. Uh, they listened to educator concerns, 
and uh, addressed a lot of those concerns. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, a lot of the other concerns, especially from the business community, will be a prime concern uh, to lawmakers as this legislation moves uh, through the lower chamber. Because there are a lot of ramifications of this issue, even unintended consequences, some of which were addressed by the Senate, many more which will probably be addressed by the House. And speaking of the House, a $2.1 billion general fund budget has cleared committee there and heads to consideration before the full House, possibly next week. Does the budget contain everything or many things that Governor Kay Ivey was asking for in her State of the State speech? It does. Uh, It uh, pretty much mirrors uh, Governor Ivey's proposed $2.1 million general fund budget, which, by the way, um, proposed increases for most state agencies, most notably a $40 million increase for the Department of Corrections, $31 million of that would be earmarked for hiring new correctional officers in state prisons. Uh, They want to hire 500, and that's a big number, but uh, listening to some correctional officials talk, that's really the tip of the iceberg in terms of the number of new correctional officers they need. Uh, I've heard figures as high as 1,800 is really how many new correctional officers they need, and this obviously going to be an incremental process, but this bill would hire 500 new ones uh, with that $31 million extra dollars. So Governor Ivey's uh, proposed budget pretty much emerged virtually uh, intact uh, when it was passed by the House General Fund Budget Committee this week. And that does include a lot of new spending. Where is this fiscal confidence coming from? What revenue sources are really pushing this along? Well, the, the general fund actually saw a little bit of good news at the end of the last fiscal year. Uh, tax revenues were up, even some of the tax revenue streams that flow to the general fund, tax revenue streams which aren't seen as the growth revenue streams that the education budget uh, enjoys. But nonetheless, there was some growth. I think the general fund ended up with about $82 million uh, additional dollars. Of course, that doesn't come anywhere near the $400 million extra that the education budget realized under uh, tax revenue growth last year. But it's a start. And the general fund is now also enjoying uh, increased revenues from online sales taxes. Right. And that will be a continued growth revenue stream. One of the things to watch, though, is that next year's budget, uh, that the spending plan that lawmakers will come back next year and work on, may be a totally different story because there are a lot of projections that we might see an economic downturn next year, and that could uh, drastically affect things. In years past, it always seems that lingering Uh, battles over the budgets end up dooming a slate full of proposals that pass committee and then die without getting full consideration. Uh, How are are the budgets moving this year? If the budgets finish early, might we see a a slate of new legislation get pushed to the floors? Uh, That's always uh, a possibility. The general fund, uh, which started, uh, of course, in the House, uh, is is moving uh, very early on. Uh, that's seen as a positive, and as you mentioned, uh, it could go to the House floor as early as next week. The education budget will start uh, in the Senate. And, uh, yes, uh, if, if, if they move early, uh, they could definitely open the door to a flood of new legislation. But uh, uh, how fast they move beyond the uh, original point, in other words, if the House passes the general fund next week, how quickly the Senate might take it up uh, remains uh, another story. You know, the legislature has been famous in years past for waiting until the last days of the session <laughs> to pass budgets. Uh, right. That hasn't always been the case in recent years, but uh, they have seemed to be doing incrementally better over the last several years in terms of acting on the budget sooner rather than later. A bill has been introduced by Representative Terry Collins of Decatur, uh, making it a Class A felony to perform an abortion in the state of Alabama. Uh, this proposal, uh, there would be no punishment for mothers that abort uh, their child, Um, And there would be an exception to save the life of the mother, but no exception for a child conceived by rape. We're seeing similar legislation in other states, uh, which may be eager to push the issue to a court challenge uh, with this perception that the U.S. Supreme Court may have shifted its stance a little bit against the historic Roe versus Wade decision. So what's happening in Alabama with this bill? Well, Representative Terry Collins of Decatur is pretty forthright in saying that she hopes that uh, this law that she's pushing, an outright ban on abortion, uh, within two weeks of uh, conception, makes it all the way to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court to challenge uh, Roe v. Wade, or at least prompt a review of uh, Roe v. Wade. She's been asked the question a lot this week, Representative Collins has, about why are you pushing legislation that you know almost certainly will be challenged in the courts? And she says because it will be challenged and hopefully go all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court 
and then force a review of, of Roe versus Wade. As you alluded to, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has tipped conservative uh, in the last year to two years, and there's been a feeling among uh, a lot of uh, pro-life uh, advocates uh, that the time may be ripe for a U.S. Supreme Court review of Roe versus Wade. And so taking a drastic step like this and proposing an outright ban on abortion might force the issue through the, uh, the legal system. Representative Mike Ball, another one of our lawmakers here in North Alabama, is sponsoring a bill to legalize medical marijuana and set up a framework where the plant could be grown and transported and sold for this particular purpose. Uh, as you know, Don, uh, Mr. Ball is also the person who successfully pushed through some limited reforms regarding the legalization of CBD oils to treat children with seizures. And as much common sense as that might make, I was still amazed when those laws passed with no dissenting votes. What sort of reception is Mike Ball seeing for this proposal? I understand uh, Mac McCutcheon, House Speaker, uh, may be showing his support for it. Yes, uh, I actually uh, spoke with Representative Ball this week about this very issue, and he seems very confident uh, about its chances. He says he has a lot of co-sponsors. The Speaker, uh, Mac McCutcheon, is said to be among the co-sponsors. I think a lot of eyes, uh, eyebrows were raised because uh, a Republican is sponsoring this legislation. As you know, medical marijuana uh, has been an issue that Democrats have pushed heavily here in Alabama during the last several years, but uh, the the effort has never gotten very far. Now you've got a Republican who's taken the lead on this issue and has a lot of bipartisan support uh, for the legislation. Uh, Mike Ball says it's all about uh, helping the sick uh, have a better quality of life. Medical marijuana is, is used for uh, treatments with the terminally ill and also in dealing with chronic pain issues, among other things. And he says he thinks the time has come for the state to take uh, this step, and he's feeling good about the chances. Does Representative Ball have any sort of special uh, pull or influence on an issue like this? Uh, like I said, the, the previous measures that he's pushed uh, went through with no dissenting votes. I think given his success with the CBD oil uh, legislation, uh, it forced a university study of the issue to treat children with seizure disorders with CBD oil. I think getting that through has given him a certain amount of clout uh, to take on uh, this this new issue, uh, it certainly would probably uh, embolden the average lawmaker uh, when you're dealing with uh, a controversial issue like that. So I think probably a lot of lawmakers are looking on Representative Ball as the as the man to carry this ball, pun intended, uh, because of his success with the CBD oil legislation of several years ago. A recent poll on AL.com shows there is overwhelming, and I mean overwhelming, public support for changes to Alabama's marijuana laws. Uh, of course, an, an unscientific poll online, but out of more than 22,000 responses, a whopping 97% of people favored approval of medical marijuana. Are lawmakers and the public on the same page here? You, you mentioned that uh, Republicans uh, have shown early support. There's bipartisan support. Are lawmakers and the public on the same page on this issue? Uh, by as wide a margin as the poll would indicate uh, remains uh, an open question. There's always the concern that's raised during these debates about, you know, if you legalize medical marijuana in Alabama, is it going to be a gateway uh, to increasing recreational uh, use of marijuana? I'm sure we're going to hear that argument again in the debate uh, this year. And interestingly, it has nothing to do with uh, Representative Ball's legislation, but there's also another bill that's been introduced by Representative Laura Hall of Huntsville, which would lessen the criminal penalties right. for marijuana possession in this state. So uh, the debate is certainly heating up. And, and that particular bill or different versions of it have been brought up in the past. Some make it through committee, some don't get to the, to the full floor. Uh, what is the status of that bill? I spoke with Representative Hall about that this week. She said she's feeling very good about it. She, again, like Representative Ball on his medical marijuana issue, is saying she also feels that it's legislation whose time may have finally come. It may be a tougher sell, obviously, than the medical marijuana bill, but she's willing to take it on, she says. One issue lawmakers have been unable to address and resolve in past several in the past several years is the condition of Alabama's prisons. Uh, the Bentley and Ivy administrations both proposed spending hundreds of millions of dollars to build new prisons. And uh, as you know, Don, a new report from the Department of Justice says conditions in the current system may indeed even be unconstitutional and in violation of the Eighth Amendment because they failed to provide prisoners with a safe environment. That report also says it costs about $52 a day 
per day per inmate to house Alabama's population. In 2017, $408 million was allocated. How are lawmakers attempting to tackle this particular long-running problem? And are these proposed changes that you just discussed regarding marijuana considered uh, part of that solution? Well, um, this is an issue. This DOJ report has been an issue that has uh, really reverberated throughout uh, Montgomery this week, uh, with the DOJ calling Alabama prisons some of the most unsafe in the nation, if not the most unsafe in the nation, especially when you deal with prisoner-on-prisoner violence, prisoner-on-prisoner sexual abuse. Uh, Officials from Governor Ivey on down have said since the report was issued that many of these uh, problems uh, are ones that the state already recognizes and is working toward correcting. For instance, the hiring of 500 new correctional officers under the governor's proposed general fund budget, which passed the House committee this week, that's seen as one key measure. And there are other things that uh, they're looking at. For instance, the governor's prison construction plan that she has floated, building three new mega men's prisons uh, around the state, would, which she says and, and other correctional officials have said would address a lot of these safety concerns. Uh, they could be equipped with more state of the art uh, safety features. So they feel like they're already addressing some of the problems that have been raised in this report. Uh, the question now is, you know, how much is uh, it going to cost the state to satisfy the DOJ that they are adequately addressing these issues? Uh, the feds have given the state 49 days to respond to the report to say, here's what we're doing and here's what we plan to do. Uh, moving forward, the DOJ, Governor Ivey said on Thursday, is expected to meet with legislative leadership here in Montgomery within the next couple of weeks to talk about what's being done. And so the state has taken this uh, very seriously. Governor Ivey continues to insist that she wants this to be an Alabama solution to an Alabama problem because the DOJ's report this week further increases the possibility that there might be a federal lawsuit over this issue. And that's the last thing that state officials want. They want to address this Uh, with state answers versus the Fed stepping in and saying, here's what you're going to do. We're talking with Don Daly, host of Capital Journal on Alabama Public Television. You can hear Capital Journal every Friday night at 8 o'clock and also Monday through Thursday during the legislative session, uh, Monday through Thursday nights at 1030. Uh, Don, who's on the show tonight? Tonight we have Lieutenant uh, Governor Will Ainsworth on the program. He'll talk about uh, his first month as presiding officer of the Senate and some of his priorities. We'll also be joined by Representative Terry Collins of Decatur and Representative uh, Rich Wingo of Tuscaloosa, the sponsor and co-sponsor of the abortion legislation. Sounds like a great show. Don, thanks for talking to us. We hope so. Thanks for having me, Brett. That was Capitol Journal's Don Daly giving us the lowdown on the latest action in the current legislative session. You can watch Capitol Journal on Alabama Public Television every Friday night at 8 and during the legislative session Monday through Thursday nights at 10.30 p.m. There's also a Capitol Journal podcast archive you can explore at aptv.org. It's been quite an hour tonight, and we appreciate you tuning in. Don't forget you can hear a podcast of this program, the Public Radio Hour, and past shows on our website at wlrh.org. Just look under Programs for the Public Radio Hour to find that archive. Our Spring Fund Drive is underway, and your support is critical to maintaining local journalism efforts like what you heard tonight. We rely upon your donations and also your comments, so we hope to hear from you soon. I'm Brett Tannehill. Have a great night.